This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Barry Scollo, the Director of Tennis at the University of Bath. He discusses skill acquisition in chaos practices, as well as common threads and skills that the top players have. This podcast was also recorded over the internet, so it may sound a little different to normal. I hope you enjoy. So uh, Barry, first of all, thanks for doing this. Um, I guess the biggest question is, how are you in this COVID world, which is a bit different? Yeah, very well. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for, for sort of having me on to do this. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's it's tough for everyone. It's been it's been it's, it's tough for everyone, and, and we're in a relatively good situation. It's nice to have some family time. I've got the boys at home doing their schooling and working for the university and team bar um still sort of busy and plenty of video calls conference calls microsoft teams and zoom and all sorts of things with the lta as well so coach education things have been going on and there's still applications and tenders i'm working on sort of behind the scenes and trying to communicate with our our tennis network so it's it's been a very very different time slightly tough in some some moments but also kind of good family time and doing okay thank you yes good so obviously you've, you've kind of linked to it there in terms of some of the roles that you have. Do you just want to explain to people kind of what exactly you do at, at Team Bath and beyond that and explain yeah what your role entails really? Yeah, so my official role is Director of Tennis at the University of Bath, which has become known as Team Bath Tennis. It's quite a big network of the main centre at the University of Bath with the STV and we've got 18 courts on that site, 18 tennis courts plus all the facilities there. Um, that um, the players can use. Um, we then have our, our wider network of clubs in terms of Salford, Froome, Wellow, um, some of the schools, Prior Park, Moncton, Ralph Allen, and then we connect with places like Millfield or Hallows and other key schools and areas. Um, so our network of tennis is over 3,500 people um, and we have about 1,500 coaching bookings. In with all of that is a high-performance elite academy that sort of some of the areas are linked with the LTA as a national governing body. We have our own academy, we have university students, and we have senior professionals that play at Grand Slams. And then beyond that, we have, a, a like I said, a club network and school sites that, that do a lot of mass participation and sort of trying to grow the game. And we also have sort of workforce development, coach education going on under the whole umbrella of Team Bath Tennis as well. My, sorry, my other role are British University coach, um, the British University coach and I do little bits of coach education and presenting for the LTA. So it's quite a big operation by the, by the sounds of it. Um, I guess from, from what you said there, you've kind of got two sides, which is like your participation side and then probably your elite side. In terms of pathways for, for tennis players in, in your programme, um, could you give an example of what, what that may look like, be it from a millfield or something like you said, or one of the clubs kind of all the way through to if they were to make it a kind of elite performance group? Yeah, so we, we introduce players to the game very young. We have tennis tots. We call it tennis tots, and they could be sort of three and a half, four years old coming in to throw and catch a ball with their parents. And then it goes through the mini mini tennis transition of mini red, orange and green up to sort of 10, 11 years old, where they start the yellow ball, the, the normal, the, the, the tennis, if you like, you'd see at Wimbledon with that tennis ball. Um, but we have progressions and skill acquisition all the way from three, four years old through to 10. In terms of the performance pathway, we're a local performance development centre where the LTA, the National Governing Body for the Southwest, 
and for sort of central sort of LTA will pick players up and we will have that from six to ten years old. So they're sort of be starting to get identified, still a lot of fun within those those uh, colour of tennis balls. And then from 10 to 14 is the Regional Performance Development Centre, so RPDC. So if you see here, we say LPDC, that's Local Performance Development Centre, and RPDC is Regional Performance Development Centre, so that's 10 to 14. And then 14 plus is really then sort of going into GCSE, A-level, university, and then pro tennis. So from six, to uni six years old through to university level pathway is the performance pathway that we have within the centre. How many um, sites do the LTA have kind of around the country that work in a similar fashion to you guys? Yeah, so not quite the same size as our centre, but the, the LTA will probably have 50 LPDCs, so local performance, and then 11 RPDCs, so regional performance development centres. There aren't 11 regions, as you know, in the UK, but because of London and the size, they've probably got four or five uh, just around in and around the London area. So then you go to the normal areas, so southeast, southwest, Midlands, uh, north and south Wales, and then that's what makes up the 11 regional centres. And then the two national centres currently are Loughborough and Stirling. So the LTA sort of centrally support those. We Bath used to be one with Queen's Club and Loughborough. So that was a previous sort of structure. So they're, they're, the, they're the numbers around the national spread of centres. And then I guess you mentioned there that kind of they can start off with your tennis tots that are real young ones and stuff, and then at a later date they might potentially get picked up. How does that like kind of um, talent spotting process go about? How how are those type of individuals kind of brought into the system? Yeah, so it, it, it happens through a number of ways. I mean, people are, are naturally attracted to a centre like ours just to get their kids active and get them into sport. And then what happens is we do we go to a lot of schools, so 25, 30 schools in the area. We invite kids back for fun days. And then we have kids in our own programme that are starting to sort of, we have like a, a try, buy, sold sort of, you know, they're trying tennis, they're buying into tennis and then they're sort of sold on the sport. That's how we sort of, they come into the centre, they start playing once, maybe twice. They might have an individual lesson. They might do the odd competition or play one of our internal team competitions. And we sort of sort of build the process slowly and, and in, in a fun way. And there is no formal talent ID that I can sort of point to. But then sort of six to ten years old, the, the LPDC will start to have maybe sort of subsidies for players doing two or three times a week or an individual lesson. So we can use a little bit of that LTA support to bring into sort of six to ten year olds to sort of you know, really nudge them in the right direction and get them building uh, a love and a passion for the sport to hopefully stay in a little bit longer term. And then looking at kind of the coaches in and around that, obviously, if you're looking to keep players in or keep kids in and have a kind of good pathway for them, I'd imagine coaches are quite important in that. How does the process look for them? Do you have a group of coaches that will work up and down that um, range or do you have specialists who work particularly at the tennis tots and then you have specialists who will work with your elite players? How does that pathway for coaches look and the support that they can give? Yeah, good good question. It's similar to it's 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 sort of a slight mixture of both. I've got a few coaches, very versatile coaches that really work up and down the program very well from sort of eight years old to sixteen years old and they can really work with any level of player. And then there are a few more specialised people, certainly with the skill acquisition, the younger kids, the mini tennis coaches, sort of five, six years old to ten. They're really in tune with the mini tennis, the mini tennis progressions, the mini tennis 
events that, that are held. It's almost like a special part of the industry. And then 10 to 14, again, we would have two or three specialist coaches working with that development age group, sort of 10 to 12, then moving into their teens. And then beyond that, we would have players that are really working with older athletes, used to working on the tour, being with more senior pros. Um, and then, so it's a little mix of both, but in every area, we've probably got two to three specialist coaches, I would say, and then sort of two, three, four coaches that, that work up and down the program. In terms of like qualifications for those type of coaches or how they end up in those areas, is there particular qualifications they go through in order to specialise in that? Or is it just kind of skills that they've developed throughout their time coaching that then leads them down that path? Yeah, there's, there's, um, we have our, our coaching badges, like I'm sure you would have in football. Um, we go to level five, so we have level one to five. And then and that's your formal education. Then in, in, in and around those will be specialist courses around mini tennis, around certain age groups, around skill acquisition, around new developments, innovations for that age, best methods of teaching. So that the, the, the coaches will glue together that formal education with some real key developments uh, workshops. They might be one or two days. They might be just a seminar. Might be an afternoon, on and off court. Um, so it's that's what that development side, those specialist courses, really glue together that formal coach education of badges. So particularly level three to four, four to five, and then behind that is sort of the last part of your question: is it's their experience in the game, it's what they have a passion for, it's where they're really best suited and where they've done a lot of their hours of experience as a coach. So as a level two, level three, level four coach, if they're picking up 20, 30, 40 hours of experience, who's it with, what are they enjoying most? As they've tried different elements of the game, their own experiences and passions come out, and then that that sits alongside as almost as a third column next to education formally, development, and then own passions and experiences and, and where they want to work in the game and where the opportunities are. So... I often say in terms of Team Bath, it's quite a big operation. We've got sort of 30 coaches working in the program. It's the best and sometimes the worst place to work in terms of development as a coach because you, you certainly can work in the area you're passionate about. But if you want to climb up and sort of progress, sometimes there's a lot of really established coaches in that area and it's very hard. You almost need to move out to come back in and work in a uh, where you've got more opportunity to work with older athletes if that's what you want to do because we've got some quite established track coaches with proven track records that have worked with Grand Slam level players at Wimbledon, French Open and so on. So it's not very easy for a coach, a younger coach, just to move in to work with Grand Slam players or the university first team because we've got someone really quite established, like I guess you would at Southampton. Um, the head of the academy wouldn't move in to be straight away the manager of the first team. Not that I know a lot about football, but I, I, you know those progressions are slightly harder in bigger outfits and organizations so getting that experience in different places is, is key as a coach I think and then when when you're looking for coaches obviously if you've got vacancies and stuff there how do you go about sourcing coaches is it a normal recruitment process or is it former players or, or how does that look yeah it's it's um you'd be tennis is a small network I mean it may be similar to football we all sort of know we know the main centers we know the key areas we know the real coaches doing a good job we would then Due to being uh, part of the university, we would go for a very structured, formal recruitment process that would involve interview, application interview, on court, off court, potentially, uh, you know, a follow up interview. 
Um, and they can be fairly structured, then moving into sort of discussion type interviews and things like that. Um, so we would we would run quite a comprehensive recruitment process. And um, we're quite lucky when we do put a job to advert. There are a lot of people wanting to be part of the Team Bath Tennis Network, which which was lucky. We're lucky to have. So obviously, at the moment, you kind of sit atop of the the Team Bath Tennis brand, if you like, and and um, you obviously your experience is suited to that. I guess is going back to start is how did you get to this how did you get to the stage where you're a director of tennis and kind of what are your experiences leading you into that role yeah no I can't say there was a massively clear pathway that you know that I was just ticking off boxes as I went you know it didn't work that way I I, um, I played semi-professional till about 2001 uh, ran out of ideas, ran out of money, didn't know what else to do really. Um, found myself playing a tournament in Bath, really liked it. Um, there was a university scholarship, I had ATP points at the time, and there was sort of, and you know, like I said, I'd run out, I sort of hit a brick wall. And um, I, I went to University of Bath and I got a small tennis scholarship. I played for the first team. That's when there wasn't very, it wasn't a very sort of strong university structure in this country back then as there is now. Um, so it was, it, you know, it was. Towards the end, you'd play Loughborough or, or one of the key unis and play a final, and that that was that. And then, it, just by chance, the LTA Academy was based at Bath at the time. And towards the end of my degree, I started as a rookie hitter coach. I was hitting with all the young kids. I really loved the area. I really loved being part of the LTA National Academy at the time. And then around 2004, 2005, I had a good mentor, Tito Vasquez, who was Argentinian Davis Cup coach. So. I was very lucky to have a lot of key coaches um, that I worked with and men uh, mentored me, Nigel Sears, um, Tito Vasquez, Simon Jones, and these sorts of people. And then um, I became national coach very quickly. So 2005, 2006, I did a couple of years as LTA national coaches with age groups. So I took a lot of national teams away in different age groups. And then in 2007, Roger Draper came in and the whole LTA structure changed. So they went from a centralized system to a decentralized system. And Jed Roddy, at the time, you're probably sure you know Jed, he, he asked me, invited me to interview for director of tennis. Um, again, a very structured, sort of open process. I didn't think with, I had some experience, but not a lot at 27. Uh, and um, I think Jed was sort of, I think, I'd like to think he was forward thinking, progressive. Um, and he, he, he slightly thought in a slightly different way. And he gave, they gave me the job. Um, and, you know, I was partly shocked and, um, and, uh, but it was, you know, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And uh, I quickly had to learn management. I quickly had to learn and, and get a team together. It was quite a small program, small program, three or four coaches, you know, doing a good job. But I had to pick up a lot of different areas of expertise because part of me, half of me still wanted to coach. Actually, what I wanted was to be a head coach. Um, and I had to quickly finish off my final qualifications, level four, level five, in my first couple of years of getting the job. But there was such a potential at Bath and, and Team Bath in the area to grab hold of participation, to grab hold of performance. It could quickly, I could quickly scale it up. And, um, I, you know, some good things happened. The LTA supported us very, very well. And, you know, awards, the program won a few awards, which was nice. So the reputation built quite quickly and then we built from there, really. So I sort of went on a pathway, but it wasn't structured in any way. <laughs> So obviously, I think from speaking to different people and coach developers stuff, quite your experiences as a younger coach and having maybe a mentor to lean on is, is quite a powerful thing in terms of guiding the way that you coach. Obviously, you've mentioned a couple of people there 
that you were fortunate to come across? Were there particular things that they taught taught you that you hadn't been aware of before, or particular skills that you were able to acquire from them during during that period? Yeah, I mean, and, and going back to the first part of your question, I think, and I, I was only just doing a talk at my former my former college on on on, on video call, and uh, I've been you know I've been so lucky with the mentors I've had in terms of leaders in tennis, you know, not necessarily household names, they're leading coaches, leading national coaches, international Davis Cup coaches. I've been so lucky, but I've also gone and sought out time, you know, so whilst I was in the right place at the right time, I also, when I became director of tennis, I spent time in London with Paul Anacone, who was coach to uh, Pete Sampras. I shadowed him. I went to observe Nigel Sears, who was a tour coach and head of women's tennis. So I spent hours and hours with these kind of people just in the background because I was allowed to. And that was phenomenal. Um, the other, so in terms of just trying to think of the second part of your question, the skills and, and, and things I picked up was communication, you know, uh, decision making, uh, structuring a court, you know, planning, planning certain things um, and all sorts of things like that. Um, and then taking things from different people and sort of saying, well, how does that fit my mold? How does it fit the current job I'm in? How would that work? But I've, what I've done is I've also continued the mentors now. I've continued sort of asking for advice. I think what's key and the best bit of advice that I could give for this podcast is a mentor as a trusted friend who you can just text at 11 o'clock at night to say, look, you know, can I catch up tomorrow? I just need to have a quick chat about something. And then a mentor who is um, a little more formal. So you are going to have like a, a one-to-one with a real theme and a topic and to try and draw out a goal or a, a future sort of next step out of that that process uh, so there's two different types of mentor for me because if you went to the greek meaning of mentor it is a trusted friend who you'd contact and have as a confidant at any time so yeah two 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 streams of mentors the trusted friend who you really respect and will give you that honest opinion um, and you can contact any time and the real formal mentoring that is like you know this person is their time is important and you've got one hour with them to talk through a subject or a theme. So would you say you learned more kind of off the court stuff than on court? Oh, good, good question. Um, on court or off court? Um, early in my career, definitely, uh, definitely on court. It was all about being on court. It was about being a head coach or a national coach. Uh, the last sort of five to six years is about management, about leadership, about, about, um, innovating off the court and, and marketing and getting the best uh, putting the program forward in the best light so it's definitely been and I'm moving more off off court now um, which I think is, is important for the size of the program I can't be coaching hours and hours <laughs> and not and leaving other sides of the program sort of left on its own so obviously from what you're saying there you, you spent quite a lot of time kind of considering the coach development side in terms of how you've gone and sought information or gathered sessions or that type of stuff is that something that you look to filter down to your coaching staff at the moment and, and what does that look like in terms of their coach development pathways yeah no absolutely um you know really lucky with the team got a great group of people and and a lot of them do come and shadow so some of the coaches are on the club program come and shadow the performance coaches and they're a little bit vice versa so the the high performance coaches can move in and, and we've done shadowing before in the past with sort of leading tour coaches have gone and done some mini red sessions with six-year-olds so they're all sort of in a club environment and sort of testing their skills um so that's quite important and then because we're an lta recognized center 
some of the other courses that go on around the country, so level threes, level fours, level fives, will often email me and say, uh, Barry, can we come and shadow you? Can we come and shadow the program? Can we come and observe observe what's going on at Bath? And we often, on a monthly or bi-monthly basis, have an external or, or a, a candidate on a level four or five coming in to, to watch what's going on at Bath. And we, we promote that. And I promote my coaches when they go on those courses to go out and, you know, go and look in London, go and look at some of the other big centres like Loughborough um, and, and see what you can pick up from other places around the country. I think it's hugely important for coach development that, that those things happen. And, um, you know, you sort of you, you look outside your own house when when time allows. And um, I suppose in demographic of the UK and stuff, is there differences to like Bath compared to London compared to Stirling? And what do those differences look like in terms of maybe facilities or players or coaches? Yeah, um, uh, yeah, no, another really good question, Mike. Um, the, yeah, the, the UK, the regions are very, very different. I mean, you take the southeast and, and London, and like I said, there's got four or five regional centres just in London or around the area to cover the southeast. Um, and you look at the southwest in terms of it's a bit more sparse. There are a couple of big cities like Bristol and and, and so on, Southampton, Exeter. Um, but to get in, getting around is very difficult. And you could also say in London, getting around is difficult. And then you go to the Midlands where, you know, Nottingham, Leicester, Loughborough, you're all sort of within 20 minutes an hour on a, on a bypass or a motorway away from each other. You know, so every region is really different and does need to be considered slightly more differently, in my opinion. Um, I think the LTA are trying to do that. Um, I think each each region in terms of accessing. So, for a kid in Cornwall, it's very difficult for them to access Bath, particularly during the week. If it's not a you know a once a month type thing, if they the kid in Cornwall or, or down in the right right in the southwest can't get to Bath as the regional centre, that is a problem. And because we do want to get the best with the best players as much as possible, but they've got to go to school and they've got to do their thing. So regionally, is is I think there's still some things to do, but um, I think the LTA have been far more. Um, you know, appreciative of the differences between all the regions. And do you see differences from region to region or is that a very individualised thing? I think that's quite individualised. I think it's, it's more with the coach and the principals and, and how they would like to sort of, you know, help build a player or how that player they would like, if they set the vision and, you know, we, we have playing principles at Bath about moving through the ball, moving and moving up the court, taking on the second serve. We're looking at develop very attacking players. You know, taking the ball on. Um, it's so important. If you look at how the game's played at the very highest level, it's very difficult to play um, as a defensive player or as a counter puncher, you know. And you saw, you know, maybe Andy Murray has he's progressed through his career, you know, and, and how you look at Roger Federer, you know, staying up against the baseline, taking the ball on and taking time away from their opponents. That's a way that the game has to be played if you look at the future. So it's really how the individual coach goes about that, I would say mentioned there kind of a philosophy at Bath I guess is that something that filters all the way through from those real younger ages maybe not the tennis tots when you're just working on, on fun and all that type of stuff but is that something that's embedded in in the club it kind of as all the kids come through yeah it's 100 percent. and it, like you said not quite maybe the five six year old slightly younger wouldn't be there but we would be we, we would be looking at those principles of play and introducing them into mini tennis in a really fun way um, and that that's that's hugely important to us in the pathway. And and as the players, as as new coaches pick players up, but it's certainly a part of our philosophy of, of attacking style of play. 
moving through the ball, you know, um, all that sort of stuff, definitely. And I guess something you've mentioned earlier was kind of around skill acquisition um, for players. And I guess a lot of their skills will link into your philosophy or your, your style of play. From a tennis point of view, how do you go about coaching or developing players' skills in specific areas? So, uh, for, for example, if, if you're trying to teach a kid how to do a two-handed backhand, for example, or a, a slice shot on their backhand, how do you go around teaching them and developing those type of skills? Yeah, it's. Um, I think from the beginning it's about sending and receiving. You know, how... how because I think a lot of kids might be, hopefully they'd be able to end a ball, you know, but it's how then you're, they're receiving a ball in terms of, and it, I, I would really look at the, the individual, the player's age and stage and their relationship with the ball and, and, and changing that up and, and using different variations of, of um, the, the, like I said, I had mentioned the red, orange and green ball. Um, you could use different variations of that different spacing on the court where they are on the court to develop that skill so that you might bring them up really really close to the net and just make the target quite big down the other end and then you might move it back and progress it forward and back as you need to and then with the older players you really want them to sort of have a game-based open open approach um so there's for every age and stage there would be really different sort of things you'd put in place and you would want to sort of move it up and down as the player was picking things up but I think that sending and receiving type of element of the sport is huge. And then judging the distance orientation to the ball, the, the, the space of the racket. With technique, we talk a lot about path angle speed, the path, the pathway the racket takes, the angle of the racket on contact and the speed of the shot. And a lot of that could be put to a lot of different sports. The path of your, I guess, your foot in football or the angle where you might approach the ball or the speed of a, or the, the weight of a path, of a pass. Um, and, and that would be similar in other sports. So you could put path angle speed to a lot of techniques. The other one you could use is we look at is ball body bat. So where is the ball, that orientation and distancing? Um, the body, how do you set up your body? So you think of an old fashioned bullfighter trying to position their body away from the ball. Um, and uh, the bat, then where is the racket? So the racket might be an afterthought because if you've judged the ball, you've got your body right, then you know your racket might be half already in the right position. <laughs> to make contact with the strings. So it, there's a vast array of things across a, a pathway of tennis that but I, I always come back to sending and receiving and finding the best contact. Tennis is, tennis is about going from one good contact to another good contact as many times as you can. And that's where you look at someone like Djokovic. It's just he contacts the ball so sweetly, so, so efficiently all the time. And do you base that around repetition of that skill? Yeah. Um, yes and yes and no. Yeah. I mean, it, there, early on there will be an element of repetition and sort of um, dare I say it, a little bit of block feeding or basket feeding is, is definitely a way to develop skill. And then you would want to open it out and, and look into a bit more chaos. So open rallies or open basket drills. So you would have players make their own decisions. So you would feed different types of shots. So you might feed a deep ball, a short ball, a faster ball one with more spin, slice or top spin, and give them lots of different variations and things to look at. So they've got to manage ball body bat or something like that. Um, sorry, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Sort of the chaos. So the block feeding, you might improve slightly quicker, but with chaos, you throw just throw it all into an open play. You, you, you're, you might take longer, but improve better over time. So you're into open points, open play, game-based approach. 
um, certainly with the older ones, sort of 12, 13 upwards. So you, the 12 and 13 age group is the one where you add in more of a chaos type of practice? Yeah, potentially you could you could you could bring it in earlier. You could certainly bring it in earlier if the players sort of eight to ten were, were very capable, even younger than that. Um, and so they get some independent learning. Um, they sort of figure some problems out from themselves. I think that is a big part of coaching. I think that is an important part. Um, and you pose the problem or you set up a condition type point. Um, but then yeah, you would certainly be looking to to get to, to introduce that more and more as the player got older, for sure. And in terms of condition type point, what what type of practice or, or drill would you do that in tennis? What does that look like? Yeah, you could start the point with a particular shot. So it might be forehand on the run. So you, you put in a particular feed of shot. So let's say forehand on the run. First ball's got to be a forehand on the run angle. And then the point is live. And then the point goes open. So you might, you might close off the first couple of shots. Um, so you might do backhand running to forehand, then play the point. You could do it with the scoring system. A lot of the time, you know, momentum of a tennis match is always interesting. So we might give the player, start with two serves, but as soon as you miss your first serve, you're down to one serve, or you've got one serve for the whole of the match. Um, you know, you don't yet get your two serves, or, or a player's working on their serve, you might give them three serves, so they can really start to play with that second serve spin. There's, there's so many variations, there's sort of hundreds of examples you could condition points with, so players see the game slightly differently. The scoring system, as I said, is always a good one. So uh, one with the serve again, a player who has game point or break point against them, they could serve from the service line. So they they vision, they see themselves hitting a great serve at a big moment. Um, again, a hallmark of top players. They always, they deliver that big shot or that big moment or in football, that killer pass or that they execute that finisher under pressure. Um, I have a friend who does, he did some, um, talks with the FA actually about momentum or pressure or taking time away and I think one of the examples was maybe uh, a team having 13 or 14 players on one team versus nine on the other so the football team might have less players so we're trying to always look at those scenarios and situations to, to throw into a game of tennis we do a lot of threes practice so two players against one so two on the baseline playing against one player that's that puts the pressure on the one um, and I, I guess you you would know similar examples. I guess would you do you do that for the entire group, or is that for the ones that you're trying to really push that maybe are going through quite a good spell and you're looking to um, develop them even further? Yeah, I think you you really be you know talking about academy players. You'd definitely be more into the sort of end of the LPDC, more into the regional pathway players. You would definitely look at threes practice. You would look at condition points. You would look at decision making, and the higher and higher up, you you would bring in that element of you know that demanding physical element. Um, and I think the the coach always needs to have a reason why they're setting that up. Why are you doing that drill? Why are you doing that practice? So, for example, basket feeding. Why why are you doing basket feeding? Is it to execute skill? Is it to build confidence in a player, or is it to run them ragged? Because you could do those three things really well with a basket. So real detailed, detailed technical work, one ball at a time, very low intensity. Or you could do, right, we're going to a tournament. I'm just going to feed you this shot to build your confidence ready for the tournament. Or I could just feed them side to side 50 balls and, and bust the lungs a bit. So you can do variations of all of those. But the, if I see a coach doing a basket drill, I'll ask, you know, why are you doing that? What's the real core reason behind that? And I guess a lot of this kind of goes around to being individualised to the players' needs and, and what, what they want or, or what you think will help develop them. 
from your perspective, how does um like what type of work do you do for individualized development plans with your players? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean that that's a key question um, because as an academy, you want like a theme and a curriculum of work. Um, and let's say Monday you're going into developing the forehand as a weapon for practice, but the player at the weekend has hit thirty double faults uh, on their serve, and you're gonna and they're gonna come in Monday morning and they want well they're gonna want to warm up, but they're gonna say look I really need to practice my serve, particularly sort of the older players, and you're gonna go into a load of, it doesn't quite work, so you you do need a hugely individualised approach. So I think that's partly the talent of the coach, you know, structuring the session and making sure players really feel they've got stuff out of all that session and then um, within the program is building individual lessons it's still important at every age group and if we can get one two hours what might what might be uh, what, what often happens is an academy approach we have three players and we might have access to two courts or we have four players in two courts so we have a group running with a practice on one court so the coach can get into 20 minutes half an hour real focused individual work with that player so they're the three or four players are developing forehand as a weapon and moving forward and then that player that hit 30 double faults will get into 20 minutes on their serve and then maybe follow it up with uh, right you're going to hit the serve and follow it up with a forehand finish so you you can start to build your core curriculum work in perhaps but really identify that player with individual work and if you didn't have all those players we do have a good one-to-one approach individualized approach and off the court that could be video analysis and in a time like this you could get video sent back and forward to develop video video of matches um, writing down of goals and progression of that splitting the screen all the video analysis that you guys will do um, so we try to individualize programs that way um, first and foremost do you have any formalized um like dialogue is there like a 12-week period where you sit down with them and say this is what I want you to work on over the next 12 weeks is there anything formalized like that or is it kind of on a weekly monthly basis yeah usually um because we still we work with a lot of schools as I mentioned at the beginning <clears throat> excuse me we're, we're on a termly we work quite a lot around a termly basis in terms of termly goals and then you have your micro goals in in the week to week stuff but we also have we always try and scan ahead we try and look six to twelve months ahead one thing we've done as coaches um that we introduced about a year ago was this, this idea of untouchable days so the the, the, t- the coaching team will meet for a whole day once a month to discuss key players key programs and scan ahead of particular goals for particular players and so on and so forth so for for core goal setting it's around a term so so maybe september to christmas with individualized work each week and then around process goals and then outcome goals and mental goals and so on and are the players or the kids involved in setting those or are they something that you'll set to them and say i've seen this in your game so i think you need to work on this area um i i think i'd like to think it's as two ways possible um i do think the, the players are hugely involved particularly at this time i think the players have really started thinking about their game and how you know when they come back out of lockdown you know i there's a couple of Zoom calls the guys are going to do with small groups of players over the next few weeks. And one of the things is, one, what is the one thing you'd like to get out of this lockdown period? Um, it could be any part of your game. So that they've got to come with that. Um, but then I'd say it's two-way, and it comes to the experience of the coach, the, the tournament schedule that's about to happen. There might be key things, you know, if it was going to be outdoors on slower courts and 
you know, the training of that and the experience of the coach having been to those events before, especially if the player hasn't been. So you're looking at different venues, different court surfaces, and the coach might have a lot to offer some goal setting around around that. But um, as two ways possible, definitely as even maybe more so as you get up the ages. When you when you're looking at um, those older players, maybe, and they've got something this kind of a glaring area of development in their game so it might be that that they're realizing on their second serve they they're not able to conduct that properly and that's leading them to losing points where people are being very aggressive on their second serve how do you go about framing kind of a development plan around that because i'd imagine they want to win and they're probably going to want to hide that part of their game so they can win the game. But then obviously it's important if they're going to try and make it to the top level that, that they have like a well-rounded type of game. So what does that look like in terms of framing that type of development area for a player? Yeah, so I think firstly we try and get into the psyche, the mentality of the player. You know, there might be players that really, you know, they, they come thinking, right, I need to fix something. And there'll be other players that you don't, they don't want to make a big issue of it. You know, so you've got to be, there'd be subtle approaches in the mentality you start with. And then I think the player and coach could sit down and, and frame it as a, a scheme of work with a vision at the end. So I was once described as sort of you're dissatisfied. Um, you've got, uh, I think it's, it's D plus B, like vision and then first step. You're dissatisfied with something or the coach is dissatisfied or the player is dissatisfied. That's why the mentality needs to be checked at the beginning. And then you frame a piece of work. Well, so what's the vision? So you don't want a second serve that's going to be attacked. Is, is the example. What do we need to do? We need to adjust the ball toss or your position of your body or the racket head speed or something like that. And then you, you, you draw the picture and the vision of that work in three months, six months, whatever. We want it to look like this. And then you identify the first steps. So it's almost like a D plus V equals first steps. So dissatisfied, what's the vision equals first steps type of approach. And we would frame that with the, the player individually. We might video it to to begin with and then show them progress in a week or two so they feel building that confidence through that and then ultimately you have to test it you have to stress test it don't you and that's where you could take a couple of steps back or you know you've taken a couple of steps forward and, and there's the skill and the art of the coach okay so move, moving on slightly and obviously we're talking a lot about the kind of performance area now could you talk through what a schedule might look like for your performance athletes more at the top end kind of like a weekly basis what the curriculum would look like or what they do on a weekly basis and then maybe what tournament schedules look like and how that affects your planning yeah so um the seniors are you know as you know tennis is a global sport it, you know even slightly further down the rankings players ranked you know down to a thousand in the world even lower have uh, a real international sort of schedule or they can have an international schedule we have a number of tournaments in this country but not not that many sort of that mid-pro range level obviously Wimbledon and, and the grass courts and other events around that but um, but that's if they can qualify and sort of top 250 in the world top 200 in the world so having them in to train is sort of really blocked out time and we wouldn't necessarily put themes of work together the coach might have an idea from when last time they saw them about really we need to work through moving through the ball for example or that transition to the net but we know we might only have the player for two to three weeks and then they go on the road for another three weeks or they're going to travel for another two week block. And we're looking at or we're looking at the grass court season. So before the virus, we were getting ready 
for the clay court season and then we were going to be getting ready for the grass court season and um, we, we know we have the players for a great block of time during that. So it's really done around these micro blocks of work with hopefully the higher the level player the, the player goes is identifying qualities of the French Open or Wimbledon or you know some of the lead-up events that go to those events. If not, we're looking at the Challenger circuit or the 10K ITF circuit. And um, we, we really capture windows of time with the senior players and that work needs to be done. So when you see the player on the road, that gives you a good chance of what to put back into training. It's when you don't see the player on the road or you can't stream their matches or get videos, It's that's when it gets a little harder. What type of effect does format or surface have on your planning and in competition phase? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we're really lucky in terms of the beauty of the sport is the variation, like the clay courts, higher bouncing ball, you know, um, it, it will grab hold of the ball. It will give you a little bit more time. You might develop a higher, a higher sort of shot over the net, a bit more, a bit more spin as well. Um, whereas on grass court, it's a bit faster. It's a lot faster. It's a little bit flatter, slightly lower over the net, different trajectories of the ball, how it travels. Um, the sort of margin for error on some of the courts. Then you've got the hard courts, or particularly American hard courts, that are sort of in between. Um, and preparing for those is um, there's all sorts of elements that you might adjust your S&C program. You might adjust the time you are on court. Um, you might want to do more practice sets in different times. Um, there, there's so many elements and facets that will go into that. We still have indoor tennis. There's a lot of indoor um, courts and, 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 you know, the tour does go indoor at the end of the season. Um, so I think there's a lot to think about for the coach and then the transitioning. So to, to answer your question, um, going from um, the, the, the fast court and getting buying a bit more time back is often maybe better. But a lot of the time you want to develop young players on slower surfaces. So they really maneuver the ball around. They're happy with the ball in play. Um, I often liken it to a defender in football who, who's happy with the ball at their feet and ready to distribute the ball as and when is the right time and, and not just hoof it blindly anywhere. And I think that sometimes the player treats the ball like a hot potato. They just want to get rid of it. But actually the slower surfaces allows them to maybe get a bit more height, a bit more spin, manoeuvre the player out and get the ball around your opponent. Rather that the indoor courts are great, but you know if you're powerful and you can just hit through, that might lend itself to a particular type of play or the server might take control. So you're adjusting your game accordingly for those surfaces in so many different ways. But for the youngsters, I would say it's been really good to train them on slower surfaces. So when the courts get resurfaced at Bath, I always ask them to be super slow. Um, so the players are really happy with the ball in play. But at the same time, developing weapons. What type of weapons? So the serve, forehand as a weapon taking time away, being comfortable taking on second serves, um, moving forward, taking the ball out of the air, um, you know, being comfortable at the net. So, they, you know, being at the net, the closer you are to the net, the more time you take away. Uh, and I think that's one part of Federer, why he's, he, the longevity of his career, if you watch how close he is to the baseline uh, and how he takes time away, is just phenomenal. Uh, and how he can still do that nearly 40 years old. And then you look at, and, and only, only recently, actually, this is sort of uh, during this time, scrolling through social media, Andre Agassi, you know, probably, I don't know if you would have heard of Agassi. Yeah, no, I have. I know Andre Agassi. Uh, he was one of sort of probably an idol of Andy Murray. You know, I watched a lot of Agassi growing up. But even if you, uh, he, so he turned 50, sorry to give you a bit of context to the story. So he turned 50 recently. So there's lots on social media about his birthday. 
So watching him play people like Nadal and Federer as they were coming up, you watch Agassi very close to the baseline, taking the ball on, giving his opponents no time. And that's a weapon in itself. Um, and that was back then. You know, you're talking sort of uh, you know, 15, 18 years ago. So it's, it's fascinating to watch the players that are really capable of and have those weapons. And then, although you want to create well-rounded athletes and players, there's probably some players that naturally find it easier on certain surfaces. So how do you navigate their perception of not going, oh, I'm on a fast court, I can't, I can't deal with this, or I'm on clay, it's going to bounce, I'm, I always lose when I'm doing that. How do you navigate their mind frame going into a season or a particular um, court type? Yeah, it's um, it's a good point, and it is hard because, as as we all know, players get things in their head that they can't do that well on that surface, or this isn't a good part of the year for me, or this isn't a good time. And I think it is it is about getting into their mindset and working on building that confidence up bit by bit, slowly, and and, and proving to them. And and it sometimes it is a hard. You've got a very um, fast court player hits the ball flat, doesn't want to be pushed back behind the baseline, doesn't want to shorten the points, is happy in the rally. And you've got to just. Um, You've got to work with them and, and sort of, especially the younger players, they should, you've got to be developing players that can play on all surfaces and help develop those skills. So it's really about getting into some detailed work, saying, well, just one or two things could make the difference here, and let's get those two things right as priority. So really working on priority points that will help do make other things slightly easier. Um, it, it's not an easy task if a player has a fixed mindset on something. You've got, you, you've got a challenge on your hands as a coach to sort of bring them round saying look you know I think you could really play on clay courts pretty well if you if you bring in parts a couple new areas to your game but keep your core philosophy of how you want to play um, you don't have to turn into a clay court player overnight you know let's bring an element of serve and volley into your games let's and keep keep that going um, and, 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 and sort of give them a more balanced approach but it's not an easy task Obviously, you've mentioned kind of throughout that you, a lot about uh, performance analysis and being able to use footage and stuff. How much does that play a part when you're going into a tournament and maybe you've got 32 players or whatever it is, 64 players, and you know that you've got this player in the first round, you have one of these two in the next one, and you can almost track your way through? Do you spend a lot of time looking at who your opponents could potentially be? Because obviously, I appreciate the different areas, but someone like Andy Roddick is a very different game plan to someone like Rafael Nadal. Um, yeah, I mean, coming into tournaments, and, and I think you'd go match by match. You wouldn't be getting too far ahead because if you're playing, if you're going in deep in those tournaments and you, you sort of know the players and the characters that come at the end, towards the end of those events, you would have hopefully played them before. And if you haven't, it's time to start building some intel. We were always talking with the players about a diary or some elements of you know intel on your opponents. Um, in terms of preparing them, you would spend you would spend some time if you were going to play Roddick and you know you've got to be comfortable returning the serve potentially maybe four to six feet further back than you normally would stand. Or if you're playing the Dow, what what would be your tactics? Would be very hard. About would you want to get to the net a bit more and try and cut the points shorter? You would certainly look to spend time on that. But it's how confident and comfortable the player would be adjusting their tactics because you know the two performance factors you can adjust in a match are your mentality and your tactics. You're not going to change your technique and you're not going to change your physicality during that match. So it's um, you know those are the two areas you've got to work with. So at a tournament, watching video reruns or watching video replays, I think you would start with the player first and foremost. 
um, and say, look, you know, you, you video, you're watching the video, you know, you could have gone down the line a bit more, you need to build cross court more, but now you're going to play this person who doesn't move well, so let's keep them on the run or change direction or try and use the tactic of wrong footing. So you would work on mentality and tactics a, a lot more uh, as you got into tournament phases, absolutely. And and you and lots of coaches would argue you'd be equally working on them in normal practice, depending on your age group. Yeah. And then in terms of uh, kind of a multidisciplinary approach and support, what type of support is put in for those type of players? Obviously, you've mentioned a little bit of different conditioning and performance analysis, but what would go in to help that athlete perform in those type of um, tournaments? Yeah, I mean, we, we would sort of, um, there would be an element of periodization and you would have, uh, there would have been physical blocks through the year or there would have been windows of education for a younger athlete. So a 13-year-old would, you could call it a physical block, but you could call it a physical education period. Um, that would be really led by the S&C in conjunction with the coach. They'd have physio or prehab sessions, uh, so body management sessions. Video analysis would be largely done by the coach. Um, and, um, yeah, that they would all lead into a player's sort of makeup before before an event. And if they're lucky or a higher level, they might have even one or two of those people around them when they're in tournament mode to help, you know, really make those one, two, three percent improvements from match to match. Because I think that's the key. When I was when I was a, a national coach and we had a player, I could really see the players that really were stepping up because from match to match, they were really taking on the learning. So we had a final once of an ITF and the girls match, um, the girl won in three sets, really tough three sets, and then actually had to play the same girl in the final the week after. They both reached the final again. And adjusted her game took on the learning and won six three six two you know and and you can also say there are other variables in there or the girl didn't have such a good day but that's a, always a good sign um i used to coach a player who who played number two in the world before the junior wimbledon championships he played the number two in the world beat him seven five in the third and believe it or not drew him first round again for junior wimbledon so you're like oh how unlucky is this and then my, the player i was working with at the time went and beat him seven five six four in two sets so you can point to those examples where the player's taken on something tactically or they've just adjusted a position on court. Um, but they have, they have a, the leading players have a, a support network, firstly at Bath, and we haven't got endless resources, so we can't always get S&C physio with the players on the road. But the players that have had, our players in the past that have made a Davis Cup squad or a Fed Cup squad have really, you know, had, had huge support and, you know, it's been, it's been massive to their career progression. And then how much of a development is strength and conditioning in tennis? I know from when I was growing up, look at someone like Andy Murray, who I remember getting cramps and stuff quite early on in his career. And the media kind of went after him a little bit and said he wasn't fit enough and then seemed to kind of progress and maybe add a little bit more muscle to his frame and stuff. And towards the later part of his career, I know he's still, he's still going, but... He seemed to be physically very good and could compete with your Nadals and your Djokovic's and stuff. How much of a development has that made to tennis and what type of effects has, has that had on the game? I think SSC, it plays a massive, massive part. It's a huge part of um, the the players' um, development, part of their, their, their training. Um, it's built into nearly all high-performance programmes now for, for many years. Um, like I said, sometimes the physical blocks... You know, being well sort of documented, the Andy Murray is a great example. I mean, what a physical specimen. And, but also the, the physical blocks he took in the off-season 
and how they are. You know, you see you see loads of players on social media, you know, posting about their the hard work they're putting in off in the off season and sending a message uh, to other athletes of you know like I'm working really hard here, are you sort of thing. Um, but I think with the younger players, it's part of education. It's educating those players that SNC is vital for for their general health their management, reduction of injury, um, confidence. It it lends itself to well-being, mentality, staying injury-free. There's so many areas that S&C will will support a player now. And and and, um, at moments of their career, you could say S&C was more important than actually hitting tennis balls, Um, particularly if you're coming back from injury and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, it it plays a huge part. And and, and we, we strive to have sort of best practice in that area. As you know, being at the STV, it's it's a massive part of what we do, and I think it's important to all young players, ed- whether it's educational, or real physical development, like putting on muscle or building their cardiovascular or something. And how much of that for you guys is done on court and working on specific areas, things like agility and stuff, and how much of that is done maybe in a gym or physio room with prehab and rehab sessions? Yeah, difficult to put a number on the exact split, but we definitely do a lot of footwork sessions on the court. We might do some bungee work, so, you know, sort of where the player has the bungee around their waist and the coach is behind holding on to that. Sprints, repeat sprints. Um, yeah, like I said, specific court work, footwork patterns. They might do some medicine ball training on the court. And then the rest is off, is off the court, on the track and in the gym. It might be a 50-50, 50-50 split or a 60-40 split, maybe with, with the, I'd say, slightly more off the court. But you could argue that you could go, you could go slightly more onto the court, depending on the philosophy of the S&C trainer and, and, and where they, 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 their philosophy sits. So it might be if it's more strength based, which is which is good, there might be there's a little bit more weights and a bit more physical sort of lifting type stuff. And if it's more agility and movement and speed might be more on the court. And then in terms of like GPS tracking and all that type of stuff, is that available in tennis do you get figures on how much uh, how many uh, sprints players do how many high intensity sprints what distance they're covering during matches and all that type of stuff um we we don't do it too much with the team bar tennis academy players some of the the higher level players have had access to gps or heart rate monitoring while they're training and then looked at that in terms of recovery states or lactic acid buildup we've done we've done a lot we've done some of that with the elite players the junior players again I think it's about putting the basics in place with the younger players. And like I said, first it's education, but if they're not sleeping right, eating right, then I don't think we get into those things because there is an element of, well, we don't let resources, we don't have all of those resources that maybe like Premier League football clubs have. And GPS things, I think we need to put some real core educational things in place around nutrition, sleep, well-being, recovery, before we start measuring some of those things with the younger players. But there's no reason why we wouldn't. So we were, we were due to have players play junior Wimbledon and we would start to monitor them a lot closer, for sure. And then to that educational process, how how do you go about doing that? Is that on court? Is it off court? Is it with parents, without parents? Or does it depend on the, the ages you're talking to? It's, it's all of the above. I mean, we do, we do a couple of off-court sessions a week that would be educational or mental skills type sessions. Um, nutrition sessions, the SSC coach might come in. We might have a guest speaker come in and speak to the, the players. Um, I often run parents' meetings and parents' chats. Um, since we try and do a lot in September, like I said, we work around the terms and we have sort of reporting at the end of terms as well. Um, and we include the parents and the players in that process. And I think, especially under 18, the parents 
even older than 18, the parents play a huge role and influence on the, on the athletes. So it's all of the above, and we have on and off course sessions weekly. Okay, so this is something that obviously when I when I'm stopping past the courts and I watch and it fascinates me is training groups. Um, and the reason I say that is obviously you're in an environment where in football you're kind of a team and you you win as a team, you lose as a team, or you kind of perform as a team. And if I'm doing my best, I'm making my teammate better, who then is going to help us on a game day. Obviously, tennis is inherently an individual sport to to a degree in terms of you're going out there on a on a match day and trying to perform. So when you're in a environment where you're competing against someone else, how do you manage that dynamic? Because I'd imagine, for example, if 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 I'm giving him good quality serves all the time and his his and that's my skill. So I'm giving him really good serves all the time. My skill was my serves he's getting loads of development of his returns, which eventually might make him better than me and might be able to nullify my super strength, if you know what I mean. So how do you, how's that dynamic managed? Um, I think you, you look at the bigger picture. You look at the bigger picture and you look at yourself and improving and competing with yourself. And if that's... Um, if, if a scenario like that happens, then that player needs to look at what other area can I build to become a super strength to counteract that because the players need to train together. They need to they need to get in that group. They need to give each other good training so they're improving and they're in the right environment somewhere like Bath. We need to put these groups together so they challenge each other. And, you know, the word compete is from Latin is to conspire together to improve. So if, if players can conspire together then you only really should be competing with yourself and making yourself better. I don't want to sound cheesy or, or, or fluffy with that, but the player lead needs to look beyond that and look to the bigger picture and all the hundreds of other competitors that are out there um, because our players need to hit together. And there is an inherently individual nature. It is tailored, and we could draw that player out and do individual things that are really specific specific to them without a sparring partner. But we have to, we have, to have... Because those sparring partners also bring variation, so... It's the right-hander versus the left-hander. It's more of a baseline or a net player. They need to experience playing against all of them and the different types of ball they send. So, um, yeah, there, there are... We have some... We have... Not, not often, but we have a little bit of conflict. There's a, Obviously, they're competing against each other if they play sets. And there is the mental turmoil that they could go through. And we, as coaches, we have to manage that and we have to set the scene set the vision for the practice, reason why, what they're going to get out of it, even if they lose, because that person knows where they're serving. Um, that's just, um, that's the nature of it. And I think tennis is a problem-solving sport. They've got to figure out how to solve problems, and the coach has to help them do that. Um, there was a great interview with Agassi recently, I keep going back to Agassi just because it's in front of my mind, um, about returning Becker's serve. Becker's serve almost changed the game, and Agassi's return was one of the best, like Djokovic now. First three times they played, Agassi couldn't get near his serve. And then the nine times after that, he watched all the videos. And Becker pointed his tongue in the area he was serving. So Agassi kept watching these videos. And when his tongue, before the serve, the tongue came through the middle of the mouth. And when it went to the, when he served wide, it came on the side. And the next nine times, he beat him straight. Um, and then they met for a beer many years later. And uh, they started talking. And he goes, and Agassi had to let him know that he could read his tongue. And he read his serve. And he goes, you know what? Becker fell off his chair laughing because he used to go back home to his wife and say, it's like the guy can read my mind. <laughs> and, and tennis, so tennis, so I've probably gone a long way from your point, but ultimately it's a problem-solving sport. 
and that player and their coach must solve the problem. I mean, from your experiences in the performance side, obviously, is it difficult seeing a player that you've been working with struggling with a certain area where you have an answer or a possible answer? Because I know you're not really allowed dialogue back and forth whilst they're playing, are you? Um, So how difficult is that where from the sideline you might be able to see a possible answer, but then you're kind of wanting them to get that answer themselves, but they're just not able to do that? How frustrating is that? It is it is frustrating, but then again, you've got to look at yourself and have you have you coached the player the right way to solve that problem on the court? Because there's an interesting argument, like Davis Cup and WTA, the coach is allowed on the court now. Um, but then you could ask some purists and say, well, that's not the sport. The sport is to figure it out on there in the Coliseum on your own. Um, you're you're a gladiator and you're fighting another gladiator. You don't get some outside help. So the outside help happens before the match starts. And as a coach, I would say, well, I haven't taught them to be a problem solver enough. I mean, it's incredibly frustrating if you know that opponent on every big point is serving wide and your player isn't picking that up. You're like, you know, you're, you're tearing your hair out. But then you've got to look at yourself as a coach and say, well, I haven't prepared them. We haven't done enough on that. And we need to create problem solvers that can make key decisions on the court. Um, so it can be frustrating and it has been frustrating in the past. And, you, you do want to shout down to them, but on the flip side, you've got to say, well, actually, did I prepare them well enough? And is there benefit from you guys being able to hit with them? So I know, obviously, obviously in football, it's difficult. We can't join in an under-nine session, if you like, and yeah. you start score. I'd love to score goals against them. I didn't used to do it when <laughs> I played, so it'd be great to score a load. But obviously, for you guys, you can kind of get involved and, and, and hit with them or hit against them without too much risk of, of injury or anything like that. Does that have a real benefit in that type of problem-solving thing where you can be really direct with um, the problems you're going to set them and see if they're able to figure those out? Yeah, it does. I think it's um, it's not essential that the player, the, the coaches, has been a great player in the past. That it does help. It's uh, it's a bit like Tesco. Every little helps. You know, if you've been a good player and you can you can compete with that player or put them in situations, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, and then you can isolate that tactic and you can send the ball back like one of their opponents would. Yeah, it's 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 a really positive part of your makeup as a coach and to get in and spar. And sometimes in my role, because I haven't. You know, I'm not on court all the time with the players. I, I sometimes like to go in and play against to say, oh, when you do that, I, real, I feel really on the back foot. Or when you do that, I feel really relieved because I feel I can come in and take time away from you. So sometimes if I'm not really sure where the player's at or I'm covering for another coach, I come in and I'll play against them and just say, oh, that's what I felt and I was your opponent. And that is a really useful, it is a useful tool that coaches can use, yeah. And do, do those type of dialogues take place between players as well? So in, in you've, if you've got a training group and you've got, for them to have that level of understanding, obviously they'd have to be quite mature and quite forward thinking. But do those type of um, conversations take place between the group? Yeah, absolutely. We try to encourage it. We really try to encourage, um, you know, player set. I think your opponent did well. One thing you think they could do better or an area where you felt under pressure. Um, we, we, we try and encourage those types of dialogue and, and try and stand back as the coach and sort of get a bird's eye view of that conversation. I think that's important. Yeah, that, that is encouraged where we can with the right age groups. And then looking on a more, more general scale and you look at kind of the top end players, 
Is there a common thread that you see between your Federer's, your Nadal's, your Murray's, your Djokovic's to say that is why they're that little bit better than the rest or that's why they've been able to come through the ranks and progress to the very top? Is there a common thread that you see in all those guys? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, oh, yeah, is there a common thread? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, prob- there's probably a few. I think... One of the big things um, I think is um, is managing five sets. Is managing over five sets. I don't think. I just think those those three players, particularly um, who have been leading the way for the last 15, 18 years, are they in terms of quarterfinal, semi-final, final of Grand Slams? How they 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 they're the ones with the experience of winning five sets in those moments because they're always at the back end of the of the tournament. So I think their management and how they cope, their match management over five sets is, is one. Um, you know, you, there's very few areas of weakness in any part of their game, but there's not, there's so many players that don't have a weakness now, how they take time away from their opponents. Um, I think is massive. And then you look at their super strengths. So Federer serve, um, and volley, volley game, um, Murray and Djokovic's return, uh, Nadal's forehand, uh, as a left-hander as well. And particularly on the clay and the slower surfaces, but I think their match management and belief in themselves and their just relentless point after point nature. Um, I think what was fascinating was to see Dominic Team play Nadal last year and to take a set off him in the final of the French. I thought was massive, and then he quickly went four love down and that he lost. He just, I think he even admitted it. He probably switched off for five or ten minutes, hmm. and Nadal, Nadal was you know taking a set off him at Roland Garros, and then he was four love down the next set. They, they just they just don't go away over five sets. You can beat them over three sets, but over five sets, I think, is something slightly different. And I think that's what will, will be the next... The player that can start to manage them and beat them. I mean, the last player to beat them, I think all three of them in the same tournament was now Bandian. So to beat Djokovic, Nadal and Federer, or the top three in one tournament, is very, very tough to do across five sets. And obviously you mentioned right at the start of this conversation about momentum and how big a thing momentum is in, in tennis. And I guess that comes back into your management of, of points and of five set and stuff. What type of strategies are there in place to help manage that? Because like you said, you obviously you've switched off for five, ten minutes. All of a sudden you've lost two or three games and you're like, well, this set's a write-off. And then before you know it, you're being a little bit lazier or a little bit lazy with your footwork and then that runs into the next set and then before you know you're two sets down you're like well I'm not going to get this back against top players so what type of strategies are there that you can put in place to try and manage games like that yeah there's 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 quite a few and, and actually this is you know I'm sure um uh, there is an expert actually in tennis Alistair Hyam he works with the FA a bit on momentum it might be one for your next podcast uh, I, I don't want to steal his thunder but um, I do a lot of work with him with the British University squad and we talk a lot about momentum and match flow and turning points. And he is the expert. But what we do, we do, there are strategies. First, the first strategy is the awareness of the scoring system. I mean, we have a, an amazing scoring system that, you know, I mean, gosh, where do you start? Um, you, you, you win the first set and you start from zero. If you said to a footballer, you're three nil up and you're going to start the second half nil nil again, it'd be like, stop. Anarchy, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that flow of the match is incredible. And, and the points won and points lost. So going back to awareness, if you're 50-50, if you go 51 or 52% of the points, 
you have like 70% chance of winning the match. Um, there is a, there is a scale. So even if you look at Djokovic or McEnroe or Federer in their, their season when they've won the most, they've only won 53, 54% of the points. So points are constantly being won and lost. So then it's then you, you move to turning points and key moments of the match. So your player misses uh, a, a, an easy ball on match point uh, or they miss a break point opportunity. So as a tennis player, we, 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 we mess around with the scoring system. So if you hit the ball in the net, you go back to, to, to level. Um, if you, you, you lose the game point, you go back to level. Um, we, we, we mess around with the scoring system to, to help get the player to understand and appreciate different types of points. Um, we, we, we make them aware of the system. We, we sort of try and treat the game. You've got to be an optimist because you need to step through the door at that moment to take your chance. And then you need to keep creating more chances and, and then show them. We, we sort of match flow. So points go up and down. And you say at that point there, you had the momentum with you. Momentum was against you. And then there was a turning point um, that could have affected the match, but you didn't let it get to you. So you were you were mentally strong or you you employed the right tactic at that point. Um, so uh, it's a huge part of the game. So one other practice we do, one off-court session I did recently with a player was um, you're, you've got the better track record. You're the bigger, better player. You've, you've won more. Your ranking is higher. But on that day, you're a 6 out of 10. And the player who's maybe not so good at ranking, you're playing him and he's, you know, he's a bit of a nemesis for you. But on that day, they're a nine out of 10, but they're nine and you're six on the same level. But when you play a 10, you, you win. So if you're a six that day and they're a nine, how are you going to manage that match? How are you going to stay patient? What are you going to do? Because you could lose on that day. So we, we do exercises like that um, and, and, and a few others that I should think of more on the spot right now, but I can't. Um, but yeah, that is, uh, I think it's a whole topic in itself. And I know football is, 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 it's a huge topic in lots of sports. And you often hear it's like a Jedi. It's like an invisible force of the match flow and momentum has just shifted. And it could be a toilet break at the end of sets. I, I can go on and on about it, but, um, uh, there are a few specialists in the area, which is, I find it really interesting. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating because. I guess in tennis, similar to golf, where it gets highlighted a lot, your mistake, and then you're the one that has to deal with it because you're the only one there. Whereas in football, for example, goalkeeper might make a mistake. You might not see the ball again for 10 minutes because it's up the other end of the pitch and whilst you're involved, you're not really involved. Whereas with tennis, you know, like you said, your match point example, you might come into the net, hit it out on match point, you've got to return again in 30 seconds. So how in that 30 second period are you going to sort your head out and almost have amnesia to what's gone before? Yeah. And then that is that, that, you know, that's a, you know, going back to the main strand of those top players, that's what they do amazingly well. Uh, Djokovic, Nadal, especially, I mean, and Federer, you just have to look at his record, but um, they, they do that incredibly well. They just don't go away. I mean, again, Australian open, I thought, I thought team was going to be Djokovic. You know, I listened to it all on the radio, but somehow Djokovic still came through that match because he was there every single point. Do you and think a little bit comes down to people being obviously in awe of them, in awe of them? Because I'm watching like the Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix at the moment, and yeah. a lot of his thing. Obviously, he's a great player, but a lot of it I think is down to the people being in in awe of him, like they would ask during the game, can I have your shoes after the game? Mm -hmm. 
which when you're trying to compete against that person, you yeah. it's kind of you're a little bit looking up to them as well. Do you think that's a little bit of those four just everyone constantly knowing that they are the top ones or yeah i i i definitely think there's an element of that there's certainly been an element over that i mean federer back between sort of 2004 to 2007 federer one 100 percent 100 percent there was an element of that um and and i worked with dave samuel who wrote locker room power um sort of the winning the, the that aura you've won before you've gone on you know the muhammad ali type thing um i think there there is an aura still around at the moment, but especially Nadal on clay or trying to beat him on clay or Djokovic maybe on the hard courts. Um, and I, I think for, for going on so many generations, how the next generation haven't quite broken up that group is, I find it, there was one person who didn't, who hasn't done that yet. It's strange, I think. Um, but it certainly has played a part. It's difficult. Again, it's that aura. It's like an unseen thing that you know is there, um, like momentum or, or this locker room power, as we call it. Uh, cool. So, um, Barry, I guess last question from me, and obviously we haven't gone a lot into your playing career or anything like that. So this might come into your playing career, it might come into your coaching career. But I ask it to everyone, which is, who's the best player you've played with or against, or the best coach you've worked either under or with or against, and why? Oh, um, can I do both? Yeah, yeah. And then coaching. So I, I was... Um... I was lucky enough to play uh, a guy called Correa, who's Argentinian, um, Orange Bowl and like sort of unofficial junior world championships. Um, he, he was a phenomenal player in terms of the width of the court he could use um, and the speed in which he, he he was a very little guy, but he, he used speed and coordination. You know, he wasn't a strong guy, but uh, I lost in straight sets to him. He was on clay, probably not my best suited surface. But later on in his career, he was a dominant force on clay before Nadal. Uh, he made final of the French and semi-finals of the French Open and stuff like that. So I played against him. That was as a as a as a leading junior. That was an eye opener, and probably the best player I played against. I played a couple of other good players as well, to be fair. Um, and then uh, coaching wise, God, I mean, I've been so lucky to work with. I mean, working with a phenomenal group of coaches, and it's difficult. But in terms of going back to the mentors I've had, I've been very lucky. Uh, you know, I was able to shadow Paul Anacone, who coached Sampras. Nigel Sears, who worked with um, um, Hanchakova and Ivanovic, um, you know, uh, lots of uh, Leon Smith, who's Davis Cup captain, I've worked with him a bit with the juniors. Um, I've been very fortunate. Alistair Hyam, he wrote Momentum, he consults, you know, the LTA and, and FA on, on Momentum things. Um, so I've been really fortunate in my coaching career to work with so many, so many great people that I think has, has served me so well. So I, I, and I've been coaching a lot longer now. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I would probably point to that. Um, I'll think of more after we hang up. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. And um, hopefully, if you're keen, it'd be great to do it again because I know there's loads of topics that we haven't touched on and uh, it'd be great to get you back in. Real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Cheers, Barry. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.